Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kashif Hawk. Kashif is a patent technology associate in the Office of Technology Transfer at the University of Toledo. In this role, Kashif is responsible for managing all aspects of the invention disclosure process, interacting with faculty, staff, and students to better understand their research with a specific focus on trying to identify and protect promising inventions. Kashif also works with faculty, staff, and researchers to prepare, document, and process invention disclosures, along with performing prior art, patent, and market searches for disclosed technologies. Prior to joining the University of Toledo, Kashif worked in corporate relations for the Office of the Front Door at Wayne State University. In this role, Kashif worked with faculty to establish research and development partnerships with biotechnology, pharmaceutical, startup, and nonprofit entities. Kashif has also worked to increase business engagement between the university and industry, as well as to foster interdisciplinary collaborations between university departments. Kashif has also served as a licensing manager in technology commercialization at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo, New York. In this role, Kashif marketed early stage oncology technologies to pharmaceutical and biotech companies, as well as contract research organizations. Prior to Roswell Park, Kashif completed a three-year fellowship in technology transfer at the National Cancer Institute of the National Institutes for Health, where he served as a lead in evaluating and marketing novel cancer technologies, as well as in representing the NCI Tech Transfer Office at national conferences such as BIO, ASCO, and AACR. While a student in the master's program at Georgetown, Kashif was an intern at the private equity firm of Focus Bankers Investment Group in their Health and Biotechnologies Practices Group. His work in this internship involved merger and acquisition-related activity in the CRO space by private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds. Kashif has clinical and medical training from St. Christopher's College of Medicine in the UK, as well as a master's in biotechnology from Georgetown University and an MBA specializing in healthcare management from the University of Toledo. He is a prior graduate of the Innovate program at Johns Hopkins University Carey School of Business and was also part of a team in the 2013 cohort of the NIH DC iCorps program. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Kashif. Yes, thank you. Um, I wanted to, again, thank you for not only hosting this podcast, but for inviting me on uh, to talk a little bit of both about my background and the work that we're doing. Um, I guess uh, one of the first things I should probably get into is how exactly did I get into tech transfer? Um, so um, it's a little bit of a winding story, but I can start from you know where I got started at and how I ended up here. 
So basically, I had uh, finished, uh, I went abroad for medical school in the UK. It was an American-based school in the UK. I came back in 2005, and I was actually, um, you know, contemplating whether or not I really wanted to do medicine. I was having second, third thoughts. There was a lot of disenchantment, disillusionment that I had. So uh, in the interim, my final rotation was actually in Chicago in Cook County, and I had a excellent mentor there who said biochemistry and biotechnology was fundamentally going to change medicine the same way radiology did. And I didn't know what he meant by it other than I had memorized cycles like glycolysis, gluconeogenesis, Krebs cycle, whatever. So I just thought, okay, there could be more to this. So I decided to take some time off, um, study for the GREs, and then I applied for a master's program in biotech at Georgetown. And the reason why I applied at Georgetown is because Washington, D.C. is not a state, so there's no out-of-state tuition. So it kind of worked out well. Um, it was a two-year master's, and the first year was all book work, labs, gels. Um, I used to have Saturday labs for like six, seven hours, I remember. And then the second year was an internship. So we interned uh, either in an industry track or we did a, a PhD track. So I didn't want to go into doing a PhD, so I interned at an investment bank called Focus Investment Bankers. And basically, my job was to work with a team, and we were trying to do mergers and acquisitions for CROs. And it was a mid-market bank, so we were doing between 50 and $200 million transactions. So it was great work. Um, I got to basically work on a dermatology-based CRO, uh, try to get two companies to merge. And the, the idea is the banks consolidate these smaller companies into larger companies and then collect the returns or collect a portion of the returns. So um, I ended up uh, working on a transaction that went through. Um, it was, I believe it was Meridian Biosciences with another company. And I was really geeked. Um, I had worked on this deal for like six and a half months and it went through and I was really excited. I thought iBanking was going to be my career. Unfortunately, uh, I woke up one day, turned on the TV. I see people going to Lehman Brothers with boxes coming out. And I was told by my mentor, you know, the financial system was basically collapsing. Um, so Bear Stearns fails, Lehman Brothers fails. And my mentor at the bank basically says, you have no more future in investment banking. So you need to take the skills that you learned in this rotation or in this inter internship and apply them earlier in the life cycle. So that's how he got me into interested in tech transfer. I didn't know what tech transfer was or, you know, what it involved. And he said, okay, if you don't know what it is, then apply to the NIH. They have a five-year fellowship. So I applied. Um, unfortunately, I had my interview in January, and then I believe the government shut down because of the uh, Obamacare debate that was going on. So I started in July, the following fiscal year, I believe. And then um, it was interesting work. So the NIH has uh, two types of tech transfer. There's straight licensing, which is called NIH OTT. And then there's collaborations, which are part of the CRADA agreements, cooperative research and development agreements, where you cooperate with a federal lab to try to develop new IP. And you're taking advantage of the capabilities and the instruments that the federal lab has. So I was working on NCI tech transfer, and my endpoint was to market out um, the capabilities and uh, uh, instruments of the research institution as a whole rather than a straight license. So it was really cool work. I got to travel to uh, a lot of different institutions and places. So I got to go to AACR, ASCO, BIO. I participated in a lot of you know, partnering meetings. I gave a lot of talks at all of these conventions. And I really found it that, you know, I was selling more of the capabilities of the NIH rather than just the license. So we were trying to get a more of a relationship going. And this was around the same time that the patent clip was going on in pharma, where you had a lot of 18 of the top 
20 drugs that were coming off patent and there was a lot of consolidation that was going on. So I was there for about three and a half years. Uh, my third year I got married and then I followed my wife to Buffalo, New York. Um, and then I was, uh, you know, working there at Roswell Park Cancer Institute. And I was working as a licensing manager. So I was a lot of times doing licenses for research tools and those types of things. And that's kind of where I first came up with, uh, you know, I stumbled upon some models of open innovation that I'll get into in a bit. And then uh, my wife was there for, you know, her residency and then she got into a fellowship at Wayne State. So I reached out to the university and they had created a corporate relations, they had secured a state funded corporate relations grant. So I was working under Dennis Atkinson, um, who's one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. And I learned a ton, basically reaching out to a lot of uh early stage startups. So the state of Michigan had a program. It was called, uh, funded through the MEDC, where if you were a startup in a garage and you put in $40,000 in a project working with a university professor, the state would match that dollar for dollar. And then on top of that, uh, you could have that money in as little as two to three months, which is much faster turnaround than an SBIR. But the goal was you collaborate with a university professor, you generate some pilot data, then you apply for an SBIR. And the, the state had a $0.25 cents to $1 match with the SBIR. So for every $1, you would get $0.25 cents for the state. Um, and the idea was to incentivize collaboration between startups and the state. So I was really um, happy about that because I, I brought in a lot of money to the university through my work there. Um, and then I was there for about three and a half years. Um, unfortunately, Wayne State had a lot of issues. I, I believe they still do um, in terms of funding and management with the hospital system. So my wife got a faculty position at the University of Toledo. And fortunately enough, they had a licensing manager position that opened up here as well. And I've been here for about three years now. And I work in a faculty facing role where I interact with faculty trying to figure out what is it that they're doing, what's new, what's different. And is this something that's patentable? And is this something that, you know, outside groups or entities would want? Wow, that's quite a journey to tech transfer and <clears throat> particularly to the University of Toledo. Thanks for sharing that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your office for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the tech transfer office at the University of Toledo and a little bit about how it's structured? Sure. So we have an office team of about five. Um, so it's myself in a faculty facing role, um, two licensing associates. Um, and then we have the director, uh, Stephen Snyder, who I consider one of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. Um, his knowledge is just amazing. And then we have uh, a person who works with MTAs, CDAs, um, as well as, uh, you know, making sure I Edison and all those other uh, information is filled out. So I believe for our size, we're very efficient. Um, again, it's my role to really cover five or six different colleges, talk to as many different faculty from as many different groups, solicit the invention disclosures, um, review them, and then have them prepared for what we call a patent committee. So we have once a month meetings between um, life science uh, groups and engineering groups. So for every invention disclosure we get from life sciences, we have two faculty members and two outside judges who then review in a public presentation, ask the inventor to come and present. And the goal is not to critique the science, but we ask the inventor to tell us, okay, why should the university spend its resources to patent this idea? What's unique, novel, different? What's the market? Why would anyone want it? Who wants it, et cetera? We force the inventor to go through those hoops so that they have an idea of what questions they need to answer. Then um, it's 10 minutes Q&A. 
And then, you know, we, the committee votes up or down whether or not they would like to move forward with patenting or not, or if there's more work that needs to be done. So they have feedback and all of this is structured so that it's within timely 30 to 45 days. So we have a customer service type of orientation where we consider the faculty our customers and we want them to have as much feedback from as many different sources on their ideas as possible. Wow, it sounds like you guys might be small, but you're certainly mighty is what it sounds like, uh, given the way you've described it. So, Kashif, I think it'd be interesting, given your size, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about how many invention disclosures, patent filings, revenue generating agreements and things like that, that your office has had in the last five years or so. Sure, I can share a little bit about that. Um, Again, with the caveat that a lot of this is down uh, due to you know, COVID-19, I believe everyone is in the boat because of what's issues that are going on with regards to both uh, how many people can be in labs or on campus at one time, as well as, you know, the entire immigration issues that are going on with regards to PhDs and postdocs from foreign countries who are allowed in. Um, For our office, again, um, it's an office of five. Uh, We have about um, I can give you statistics from fiscal year 2013 to 17. We have had about 349 invention disclosures, 141 issued patents, um, 68 licenses and option agreements, and 10 startup companies. So relative to our size, we're very competitive. Um, we've been ranked among the top 100 universities in the world for patents and issued in 2017 by a National Academy of Inventors. And we're ranked among the top 75 universities uh, by the Millikan Institute in 2017. So I would say, again, relative to our size, what we're trying to do, and we are very competitive for that metric. I would say so. I think definitely you're very competitive in that regard. Now, Kashif, I wanted to turn back to something that you alluded to just a few minutes ago. You were talking a little bit about um, the Open Innovation Program at the University of Toledo, and I know that's something that you've developed. Can you share with us um, some information about this program, what it is and what it does? Sure. So um, it's a program we're piloting now. Um, I guess the genesis of it would be first, how did I even come up with this idea? So when I was at Roswell Park, we had an oncologist, surgical oncologist who would come up with three to four inventions every couple of months, and they would all get patented and they would all have commercial interest while we were trying to get them licensed. In other words, there would be a waiting list of companies to look at them. So I just got curious to know how is it that one guy by himself is coming up with three to four licensed patents every few months. I I just didn't understand the process. So he told me, okay, if you want to learn my process, you have to come to my surgery. So what time's your surgery? It's at six in the morning. So I have to get there at five in the morning to gown up, glove up, et cetera. So I show up to his surgery and he said, okay, you're not going to say anything. You're not going to do anything. You're just going to stand in the back and watch. So I said, it's fine. I'm here to observe and learn. So I stood in the back and I see, okay, right next to me, again, this hospital didn't have an academic affiliation. So he found these people from outside. So he had a PhD in biomedical engineering next to me from University of Buffalo. Next to him was a girl who drove from an art college in Rochester an hour away for this surgery. And next to her was an undergrad from the University of Buffalo in electrical computer engineering. So as he starts the surgery, he starts shouting things. This clamp sucks. This buoy sucks. This light, I can't see anything. And I noticed the engineering guys making sketches of a new clamp, a new buoy, a new light, a new surgical instrument. So then he, in this 
45 minutes to one hour surgery, he made about 15 sketches. Okay. He gave the sketches to the girl in Rochester from Rochester. She drove back to her art college and she, over the course of two to three weeks, printed out 3D printed prototypes, modeling them with ergonomic design, the, you know, humans having a design eye to these instruments that he sketched. She then brought them back two weeks later and then showed it to him. And then he said, okay, I like this one, this one. He chose about seven or eight. And he said, okay, I want you to keep working on it. Then he gave one to two of them to the undergrad. And he has said, you have four months to produce a poster and a paper. So he said that you saw one of my surgeries and one of my teams, I do three surgeries a week with three different teams. And that's how I get three different patents. Wow, that's incredible. That's an amazing yeah. story. Yeah, so he basically has incorporated innovation, patenting, um, and invention disclosure all in one process. It's not like a separate process for him. It's all organic. It's all something that's being done in the course of his actual everyday life. You know what I'm saying? So using that as a backdrop, I was trying to think, okay, how can we replicate something like this to get disclosures? Because as you know, federal funding has not kept up with inflation. And a lot of universities are under pressure to try to get more disclosures, try to get more ideas and inventions. So how do we revolutionize the ideation process, if you will. So that's where I gave some thought to it. And I said, okay, you are the inventor. Okay. You come in with just your idea. Okay. So where do you go now? Normally, if you have an idea, you flesh out the idea, you try to write a business plan, you try, I mean, you're kind of on an Island by yourself. What we have to do is similar to like an I-Corps model. First you find out, okay, is this a fundable idea? Is this an idea that actually meets an unmet need? Is this uh, addressing a problem that people actually care about? So you, let's say you go through an I-Corps and you have a, a fundable idea now. So where do you go now? Now, I've what we've tried to do is, again, it took me a few years to build this model, but the idea is you would take advantage of all the different elements that a university has. So you would first go to, let's say, the business school or the law school, the business school will have an MBA clinic of students who will work with you to write a business plan, write a marketing summary, and help you prepare a marketing pitch. Next, you can go to a law school and the law school will have law students who will work on helping you write your provisional under supervision of an attorney or faculty member, do legal searches for you, patent searches, et cetera, as well as any trademarks that you want to have. Then we can have an engineering school with an engineering uh, capstone or engineering clinic, and they can build you a prototype, again, at a very highly subsidized cost for, like, let's say, 200 bucks, whereas a commercial one would charge you $10,000, you know, and they have to do this as a part of their graduation assignment. In other words, they can get the intake from you in the fall, but they have to have the working prototype built by the spring, and that's what they're going to show off in a design showcase. So um, they'll build the prototype or any kind of software or hardware that needs to be coded or built or anything. Then we're going to have in the fall of this coming fall, we're going to have the art school involved to have help work with the design of it. It's one thing to have the engineer's eye, but we also want to have the artistic eye. Is it something that's usable, functional, easy to use, et cetera? Is it something that has that? Now, I've seen and read other schools that also get the art school involved in a lot of different dimensions in that you can have the drama school of the art school work with you to deliver your pitch, you know, use Shakespearean acting techniques to deliver your pitch. Okay, I've heard of that. You can also have the music school help compose your jingle. You could also have the art school help compose your logo and then take it back across campus to have the law school do a search of your trademark. So the idea is we're taking capabilities and advantages of every college within the university, but we're incentivizing it and having it as a class so that 
the senior design of each college within the university is working with us to take you, the person, the entrepreneur, or the person who walked in the door with just an idea and have it go through this entire gamut of different colleges and have different people with different types of brain power apply it to each set. So your idea is stress tested from five different directions. The goal would be after this entire output is you're coming out of there with a business plan, potentially a provisional patent, a working prototype, um, some idea of how to present your pitch, uh, as well as maybe trademark logo, et cetera. Well, that's super exciting. I'm really curious to see what you end up coming up with. So we'll have to stay tuned, I guess, till next spring, it sounds like, to... Uh, Correct. Yeah. You can have me again, on again. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think we'll have to have a follow-up episode where you tell us how that works out. So uh, everyone stay tuned for that one. So Kashif, uh, switching gears a little bit, could you tell us what you think is the most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success? Yeah, I think the biggest thing in managing innovation is managing people. Um, ultimately, if you don't get faculty buy-in um, or you get don't get people that trust you or your office, you're never going to get disclosures. You're never going to get people that are going to confide in you what their research ideas are, what the weaknesses of their idea are. If you don't have that, then no amount of anything that I've said is going to make a difference. So I think that's the first thing is building trust. Now, I've been in situations where you walked into a job or a situation where an office has absolutely no trust. And that's hard. I mean, I can only say that you have to first go before anyone knows me as the invention guy or the innovation guy, they know me as the person. So I try to work on building a relationship with people in different settings and in different ways, because ultimately soliciting inventions and getting inventions commercialized is also getting buy-in and trust from inventors. And if you don't have that, you're not going to get anything. Um, that's, I think that's kind of an unsettled, uh, unspoken element of this. Absolutely. Completely agree. Because if you don't have that trust built in there that you can work your hardest and, and nothing's ever going to result from that invention. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about corporate partners and the role they play in tech transfer at the university there. Can you give us some examples of some relationships with corporate partners? Sure. Um, so we've been fortunate, that, again, a lot of the universities, we have a medical center um, that we have work with as well. And the medical center provides us with, again, the biggest currency that we need is patients. Patients with certain subsets of diseases attract certain companies that need those patients, whether it's for clinical trials, disease research, et cetera. So that's one part of it. Again, we're also fortunate we have an engineering school, which attracts People who need what? Our engineering graduates. There's a shortage of STEM graduates in the Midwest. So obviously that becomes a point of, okay, we have a limited resource that they need. So again, this you know, open innovation program is also giving these people exposure to interdisciplinary teams that are building new products, services, and ideas. So that's something that we like. The other thing that we think is, you know, a long-term thing is corporate partnerships need to be nurtured at a lot of different levels. So it could start at a simple level that I've seen it done well, that, okay, I need, the company needs X done, they'll contract with you to do X. But we like to deepen it. And I learned this from my previous position at Wayne State is that the university has multiple touch points. Your advantage and your goal should be to find as many different ways to have those touch points across with that corporate partner, and then you can deepen that relationship. So let's say if you're working within one group within a company and your university, 
have that group come on campus, have them meet in as many different faculty as possible, have them tour the campus, have your faculty go there and see what they're doing. Um, so there's got to be that cross-pollination. The second part I would say is then, okay, how do you leverage that? So we've had it so to the point, okay, if this company wants to outsource a lot of their work to the university, because companies do applied research, they don't really do basic science. That's something that universities specialize in. So if they want to have a depth in basic science and still be able to apply it, that's when they can make you know, a one-time donation of some equipment that they know that you're going to use, that you're going to train employees on, future employees that they can recruit from. And then once you've deepened that commitment across a lot of different levels, you can start having further engagements. I've seen professors who do it so well that we have a cosmetics and under, we have one of the only undergraduate cosmetics programs in the United, uh, in the U.S. So the professor that teaches that class, she has all her graduates are working in Estee Lauder or um, wow. in any other cosmetics company. So she can just pick up a phone and get them an internship or a job. But more importantly is they then work with her to get projects, industry-sponsored research projects back because they're graduates of her program. That's pretty awesome. That's great. So would you say Kashif corporate partners have led to more deals or differently structured deals? I would say probably different structured deals. I mean, every partnership first starts as a conversation. Um, it's between two people who are first finding ways to collaborate and cooperate on something. Um, that then deepens once, um, you know, you've done something. So like at Wayne State, I worked with, a, you know, my supervisor and a team to try to build out a clinical trials office. They didn't have one at the time. Um, we had a building that was built, and the idea was is the patient population has certain diseases and conditions that could attract clinical companies that are interested in that population, specifically in inner city Detroit. A lot of drugs and devices are not tested on African Americans, and that's leading to problems with the e efficacy of those drugs and devices. Um, just a simple thing as like a pulse ox has had problems with African American patients. So I think once you leverage what you have in terms of not only the surrounding environment, but your university's core capabilities, you can then attract people that you didn't think you could have attracted. Um, and that could be just in so many different ways of engagement. What about the role of philanthropic organizations like the Gates Foundation? Do you have any of those organizations at the University of Toledo? Yeah, we have a few researchers that are funded by um, like the American Cancer Association or American Cancer Society, sorry. Um, and the goal here is, of course, they're not looking for profit per se, um, but they are looking for someone who can do research to move the needle on that um, in terms of, OK, let's say there's a rare or, or neglected disease. Can we have a researcher who's working on that? We've had, um, believe it or not, one of the people who used to fund this area was the disgraced Wall Street guy, Martin Shkreli. Um, he actually funded one of our researchers on something, and we negotiated a license agreement, if you can believe that, with them too, um, which is odd to believe. But yes, he actually figured out that rare orphan and neglect diseases have a limited patient population, so it gets faster FDA approval. But guess what? Because it's also, you have a limited monopoly, you can jack up the price. I mean, I think he understood that very clearly. I, so, I think he does, especially yeah. now. Yep. But the point here is, I think that um, you have, let's say, one capability there. The other thing that I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard it as a joke, is that if you have a disease that you have a researcher working on, all you need to do is find one famous movie star, actor, actress, athlete who may have had that disease, and there'll probably be a foundation built around that to try to fund research in that disease. 
Now, I don't know how true that is, but I do know, I mean, the Michael J. Fox Foundation gives a lot of money. Before he got disgraced, the Lance Armstrong Foundation gave a lot of money. So I have reason to believe that there could be some truth to that. Switching gears again, um, could you describe for us some of your office's biggest success stories, whether it's in terms of successful technologies, licenses, startups, things like that? Sure. So we've had, um, I guess, a few, uh, you could say, base hits. Uh, I wouldn't say we have had a total home run. But um, again, core capabilities of the university have been in, uh, in our, historically speaking, this area has been in class research. So the glass research, it turns out, has a lot of uh, ability to transfer over into solar panels. So we've had a lot of successes with uh, working with a company called First Solar that has been licensing a lot of technology from the university. In terms of the life sciences, uh, we've had you know limited base hits um, in terms of ideas or interest in licensing uh, medical technologies. Uh, we have an excellent technology right now in CAR-T therapy for type 1 diabetes, um, and that's shown a lot of promise in mouse models. Uh, we've also had a lot of interest in other technologies, such as, you know, this process that we're running through right now with, uh, you know, the open innovation process. We're getting a lot of surgeons and medical residents now who are disclosing ideas to us that they've noticed um, that then we're having engineers build and test out, artists design, and then seeing can this then having the clinicians and the faculty and fellows test it, um, you know, with patient consent. So these are things that we're testing out. I, I wouldn't say they're like, you know, billion dollar blockbusters, but sometimes all it needs is a small little problem that someone's noticing and that can be solved with a simple invention. And that can what we consider a, a licensing success. So along with great success comes challenges. What would say two of your office's biggest challenges are? Um, again, partially is, uh, I guess, the two biggest challenges is we're considered in flyover country. So we're not going to attract C-level uh, talent to run startups. So that's going to be a problem and a challenge because let's say if you have a great technology and you have a great researcher, but you now need a CEO or to run that company. Um, that's one challenge to try to get it, you know, in our incubator and have it start up. So I think the challenge for people in smaller areas, smaller schools or in the Midwest or, you know, Southeast in general is that in these areas, you're going to have to grow your own sea level talent. You're not going to bring someone from the coasts there. So I think that's part of it. The second part of it is I think um, in general, you want to try to get ideas because, Again, we're not a billion-dollar school. We don't have a billion-dollar NIH-funded budget um, that a lot of other schools locally and nationally do. Um, so what we try to do is find the technologies, find the areas that the core areas of strength that the university has, either in terms of research or partnerships, et cetera, and try to go and push farther and farther into those areas so that it can grow not only in terms of new IP, but it can possibly lead to new collaboration, new licenses, new you know, agreements that we can work on with industry for that. So those are ongoing challenges because when you're working in a smaller university, your challenge is always to do more with less. Um, and can you leverage what we have to try to move the needle on a technology and de-risk it further to get to the next milestone? Now, another important topic that I like to ask my guests about is women inventors and entrepreneurs. Does the University of Toledo have any programs to help encourage and assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you tell us about those in a little bit of detail? 
Yeah, I guess um, there's from again, I apologize. I'm a little bit ignorant on this topic, but I will, uh, you know, look into it a little further. From what I know, there are three main groups that I know of. There's obviously student societies for uh, female students in engineering, the STEM fields, uh, as well as the life sciences. The second thing is obviously there's mentoring, uh, mentorship that goes on for female faculty, uh, particularly in the clinical side. And third thing, um, you know, that I've spoken to for female PhD and graduate students is, you know, there's ongoing issues and concerns about job placement and childcare and those types of things and managing that, um, you know, and how do you manage that? I guess that's something that happens, you know, within groups and discussions. In terms of an organized effort, what I'm aware of, uh, you know, those are the three that come to mind immediately. I know there's more regionally and probably a lot more nationally that's going on. I know um, in the STEM fields, there's been a lot of issues uh, with regards to, uh, you know, abuse uh, in terms of what's going on with PhD students and stuff, especially for female PhD students. And that's something that, unfortunately, you know, every university, I think, has to deal with that issue. So switching gears, Kashif, I know you've been very active in Autumn, particularly its partnering committee, which for those people who may not be familiar with that committee, is designed to better connect industry and academia. Um, and you've been so involved and dedicated to that committee that you've won awards um, twice, actually, in 2018 and 20 for your work. Can you tell us a little bit about the committee and your work in this uh, area? Sure. Um, so basically, the Autumn Partnering Forum Committee was set up to better connect industry with, uh, you know, Autumn member schools. So the idea would be that if we can bring the Autumn member schools together at one forum with industries on one topic, then what you do is like every partnering forum or partnering meeting that I've ever been to, whether it's bio or ASCO, et cetera, you upload your technologies and then software will match you up with the right company representative you should meet for. Um, and those meetings could be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. Um, the idea here is the company is getting an idea of what's going on at the academic level and the university is figuring out okay, who, where could I, this technology find a home. So I think that this works well um, if you have a set topic and you have schools which have expertise in that topic. So the first partnering forum that I worked on, um, you know, at least helped take the lead on was one that was organized by another group um, from Washington, D.C., but we had them come to Wayne State's Tech Town campus. Um, actually, it's independent of Wayne State, but it's actually more by the city, but it's an incubator. So we had schools that specialized in materials research. So we had, uh, you know, schools as far away as North Dakota, um, as well as, uh, you know, out west in the mountain areas, come to Wayne State because they had expertise in materials research. And then we had companies that were seeking out com uh, expertise in materials research. So we had people from GM, Ford, Chrysler, auto suppliers. We had Alcoa. We leveraged a federal um groups such as there's a lift coalition. Basically, the federal government created centers of excellence to specialize in certain areas. So there's one federal center that was specializing in materials um, that was stationed in the Midwest. We had them come as well. And the idea is then we use the software to set up the meetings at the location. So it was really neat in the sense that I don't have a PhD in materials. I don't even have any background in materials engineering, you know, but I was able to just find what we had and find which schools had some interest and experience, invite them to come to the conference, 
and offer them a chance to meet 12 companies, 13 companies to try to get one of their technologies on their company's radar. So we did that in 2018 and it was, you know, I would say a small success. Then it was repeated again at 2020 at the autumn annual meeting. And this time we did it on research tools. Um, and, you know, again, we invited the companies to give talks in the beginning, and then I moderated that panel. And then after the talks, then they were allowed to sit at a round table with five schools at one time, you know, and then if they wanted to, they could use the autumn software and schedule individual meetings. That's really neat. Are you going to be able to do that for Autumn National this year? Or is this something that's going to wait till 2022 when we're all able, hopefully, knock on wood, to meet in person? I think they're doing it virtually now. Um, the way Autumn's committee, volunteer committees work is that you can only stay on for a certain number of years. Uh, so I think I was on for three and a half years and then you have to resign or they roll you off and then they bring in new people. So I would urge anyone who's listening to this podcast or if you're interested, please email Autumn and say you'd like to join that committee because I rolled off at the, at the beginning of this year. So, but I still do keep in touch with them and I know that they're playing another one at the annual. It's going to be all virtual. And then next year, uh, assuming it's going to be held in person, it'll be in person. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, he, he's laughing because I'm knocking my head like knock on wood type of thing. So, so, uh, Kashif, I wanted to ask you, do you have a view on credentialing uh, things like registered tech transfer professional, the RTTP designation? Um, and if you do, do you think it makes a difference? Um, I mean, I don't we have one person in our office that has that. And I think for her, it's it's been beneficial. Um, my personal view is if someone is coming into tech transfer purely from academia, let's say from a PhD background or from a lab or clinic background, and they don't have the knowledge, then I think it would be extremely beneficial to have that credentialing. Me personally, I think you learn more through experience. Um, some of the best experiences that I've ever had in terms of learning about deals and what to do and not do in a transaction I've learned, you know, through a deal, through a transaction, through a relationship that I had with a researcher or that didn't work out because of a technology didn't do X or Y. And I think experience is the best teacher. Um, it doesn't hurt to have a base of knowledge and an RTTP designation or a CLP designation will give you that base. But I think nothing can substitute for experience. And I've learned that the hard way just because I've seen so many deals fall through because of a certain element or Thing that sometimes you even had an issue where two researchers didn't get along. You know, a researcher from industry didn't get along with the guy from our side and we couldn't make it work. Um, even though everything else lined up, the company wanted to do it. The technology was a perfect fit in their portfolio. It just couldn't work because the two guys didn't want to work with each other. So I think that's something that you can't learn in a, an exam or a designation. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have, go after those because I think that designation gives you a piece of knowledge. I think the experience is the ultimate teacher that you're going to get. Well, Kashif, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would those be? Um, I guess three things that I wish we could have is, you know, obviously greater awareness, um, um, capabilities of all the different ways you can um, leverage university resources to achieve something. Um, a lot of people just think, oh, you know, a university is so big, I don't even know who to talk to to get something done. And that's kind of daunting if you're from the outside. I think that if there's ways to make universities more business friendly or customer engaging, I think that would be something I wish I could do because uh, there's not enough money that a lot of universities put into that to try to become like a front door, so to speak, that you can then walk in and see where do I engage? How do I engage? Who do I engage with? 
I think the second thing I would love to see is more um, engagement from uh, industry to universities because they see, I mean, I was literally on a call with someone from industry yesterday and said, you know, we normally don't engage with industry because we think they're difficult to work with. Um, that may be true in some schools, and I'm not ruling that out, but I think that there should be a meeting of the minds that, you know, universities are bound by federal and state laws. Um, they have to follow because they're land-grant institutions. And, and at the same time, the speed at which things move in industry requires that universities try to up their game and try to make business-friendly agreements and processes. Unfortunately, there's a mismatch on both sides. And I think the third thing, at least from my side, is that I would tell anyone who's in the university, whether an undergrad, graduate, clinician, or researcher, even a nurse, I've gotten an invention disclosure from you know, a medical assistant before, that you don't have to be a PhD or an MD or a P, you know, an MBA to come up with an idea. You just have to see a problem and have to envision what would a solution look like. So if you have that capability to do that, you can be an inventor. And if you work for an institution, the institution has an obligation to protect that idea for you. So that's, I guess, the best wish that I could wish for people to have had a big, you know, greater awareness for. I think those are three great wishes and good luck on getting those realized. I have no doubt that you and your team there at the University of Toledo will get there. Thank you. Well, Kashif, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. Um, so the two best ways, I guess you could hit us up at the University of Toledo website, um, which I can send to you or I can post. The, I'm also available on LinkedIn. Um, and then, of course, there's email and phone. Uh, so all my information is posted on the University of Toledo Tech Transfer website, as well as um, on the LinkedIn. Feel free to send me a message on there. Even if we're not connected, I'm happy to reach out. I'm also, I believe, on Twitter as well. So I'm available pretty much on those three main areas. And then, you know, I'm happy to interact with anyone if I ever, if we ever get back to seeing people in real life again, um, or traveling to conferences and conventions, I'll be happy to meet up with anyone in person as well. Yeah, I certainly hope that's coming soon to be able to meet up in person. (laughs) But thank you so much again, Kashif. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Yes, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.